This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 152. Well, just ahead, the case for a stronger post-pandemic airline industry. But will American Airlines get the memo? And a company that's quietly benefiting from expanded drilling for shale oil, a company you've probably never heard about, but that's doing amazingly well. And how the collective defenses of all cybersecurity companies may be helping to keep Russian hackers at bay, at least for now. We're going to talk to Sudhakar Ramakrishna, the CEO of SolarWinds, a company trying to manage all of that cyber infrastructure. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, but when you do, hit the subscribe button, the plus sign, whatever you got. Make sure you're catching all of our shows by becoming a Drill Down subscriber. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind stocks and the move and helping me do so. As always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac. How nice are you doing, you. Corey? Here are you. Nobody can see you except for me. No, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down? The average, you know, producer. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'll tell you. I mean, it. there's, you know, I've got my favorites. All of this has got to be cut out. Ben's no. got his work out for him. Come on. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with American Airlines. You've probably heard of this company. I've heard of American Airlines. I've had some experience with this company. Uh, trades under AAL and shares are, are relatively flat since the beginning of the year, but they've fallen 50%, 15% over the past 12 months, not keeping up with the broader market. Yeah, but a big move in the stock this week uh, on a lot of airline stocks, in fact. Um, and, you know, market cap doesn't tell us a lot with this company. It's one of my favorites when people say, they've got a bigger market cap than American Airlines. Well, it's because this company has so much debt, um, about $40 billion enterprise value, but about $30 billion of that is debt with about a $13 billion valuation on the stock. Um, the question, are airlines back? You flew last week, Isaac. I did. Yeah, um, everything's packed. I've, been, you know, I've, I've flown a significant amount this year, actually, and every, every plane has been packed, overbooked, the airports was, are crowded. I was at the airport this morning. Yeah, and it was busy. Um, uh, I was at SFO. And uh, look, across the country, more than six and a half million people have gone through TSA checkpoints, um, according to TSA. 
That's just about a half million people below the 2019 figure for the same week. So, um, uh, you know, the business is picking up. Airline spending was 91% higher in March compared to the previous year, according to the Bank of America Institute a Consumer Checkpoint, um, as reported by Barron's. Um, uh, in North America, the pilot shortages, however, you know, are seeming to slow down the business. You know, 12,000 pilots uh, um, could be used. Alaska says the 10,000 pilots have left the industry during COVID. So the question here, right? And no, don't let's not forget jet fuel, right? What was jet fuel going to, what are the prices going to look like with the increased fuel prices? So this morning, Delta came out and said, you know, things not really that bad. Sales are going to be 93%, about call it 95% of what they were in second quarter 2019. They said March was already profitable. On Tuesday, American Airlines, which we're going to talk about in a minute here, you're going to hear from, came out and said that their fuel costs, while higher, um, they had projected about $2.75 uh, per gallon uh, for, for jet fuel. Now they say it's going to be about $2.82, which would say not even 3% higher than their last projection. So I think that what we're finding out is that the business is better, costs are not as bad as it seemed, uh, and the airlines might be doing better, which explains what's happened to the stocks in the last few days. But in going back and researching the story, I came across this fantastic anecdote um, at, a, at a conference that I've never been to, the J.P. Morgan Industrials Conference, um, which was just about three weeks ago. Doug Parker, who is, is no longer CEO of American, was just stepping down. He stepped down about a week ago. Um, he told a story about what he did in 2009 that he's never told before about buying the stock of all of his competitors with his belief that the airline industry was stronger than it looked. A story never told before until now. Back in 2009, um, I never disclosed this because I didn't have to, but uh, I was CEO of U.S. Airways. Uh, I looked at the valuation of the airline industry and thought there's, this just doesn't make any sense. Um, all, there's no, maybe one of these stocks should be this low, but all of them shouldn't be. Uh, the industry's worth more than this. We will be worth more than this over time. So I went and bought um, with a reasonable amount of my, of, of my net worth at the time, a lot of other airline stocks. I told my board, um, I said, I know this is strange, but I actually think it's, it's going to help me run U.S. Airways better. I'm betting on the industry. Um, that's what we need. Uh, we, so I'm, I'm buying other airline stocks. You know, if I buy a share of American, I got to disclose it. If I buy a share, sell a share of other airline, I don't disclose it. So this wasn't disclosed. I'm telling you now I did it. Um, in 2009, told my board I was doing it. And the result was, I don't know, I, I, I have to go back and look, but I think I had a triple over the course of a couple of years um, because, of course, the industry was worth a lot more than that. And this feels like that time. This feels a lot like that time to me. Um, in total, the industry is so undervalued versus what we're going to produce in, in forward cash flows that it just seems like a time that you can't go wrong buying airlines. That's my view. So let me tell you why. Um, First, one thing I want to tell you is I know this is going to seem like, okay, here's another, here's another one of these presentations where they're saying, okay, it's different this time. Uh, my thesis is not as different this time. My thesis is it's been different for a long time. Um, but all that changed is a global pandemic that wiped out industry revenues. And once the, the effects of the pandemic are gone, what you will see is an industry has gotten stronger um, and there was already um, a strong and well-functioning industry. 
So that's it. The industry is structurally sound. What changed was a global pandemic. During the pandemic, our industry got more structurally sound. So when the effects of the pandemic disappear, what will reappear is an even stronger airline industry than before. So Isaac, I think it's an interesting idea that during the pandemic, companies used it to trim fat, used the time to fix operations because they had to, but they, they leave the pandemic stronger than they were structurally more sound, in the words of Doug Parker, than they were before um, and back in 2019, call it. Well, demand certainly seems high, but so do ticket prices, though. I don't know how many airline tickets you purchased this year, but um, there's a little sticker shock going on I, in, my, in my world, at least. Well, that's really just about your expectations, isn't it? Uh, maybe so. Come on, big spender. Let's get out there. No, I'm buying. I'm buying all the summer travel tickets like this week, and it's. And what are you finding? The, well, the numbers are with every year. It's like this. I'm like, what? I know, right? What? No, but it seems significantly higher this year. It's like, year, oh, it's three hundred fifty dollars if you want to fly at midnight and arrive two and a half <laughs> days later in New York. You know, it's yeah, <laughs> right. Now let's throw into the fact that I've got four kids of all of them flying back east. Oh goodness, that's enough. Corey, what is your next drill down? C4 Therapeutics is our focus. C4 Therapeutics trades under CCCC and shares have fallen 71% in a year, really taking a dive this month, April 2022, starting the month trading around $26 a share, now at $9 a share. Ouch. Yeah, 25 to 9. Rough month. CCCC, not to be confused with CCCP, which of course was a the Soviet Union back in the day. Oh right! Oh yeah! Great hockey sweaters though. Yeah. But I digress. Quadruple C is a biotech company that is um, uh, theoretical. It, it is it is a company that uh, has yet to produce the products. Uh, no, but no drug in the clinic. But a really great big valuation. I hope that they're going to get there. Um, I want to introduce a new phrase to you, Isaac. Ready for this? Okay, I'm into it. Yeah. Tumicidal activity. Tumicidal. Ooh. Is their focus. Is that, is that a tumor committing suicide? What is that? Exactly. It's tumor oh, killing. Oh, is it? Tumicidal. <laughs> nice. So if you read the academic papers of what these guys are trying to do, and I tried to read some of those papers, they're looking to um, encourage tumicidal activity, which is cancer tumors killing themselves. This company was started in 2015 by a Harvard Medical School professor and another and an entrepreneur trying to use what is known as protein degradation to encourage tumicidal activity. And that is, these would um, uh, uh, introduce what's, what are known as protein degraders um, into a cell or into a tumor that would keep the tumor from recreating its own protein and essentially kill itself. Now, there are products from Celgene and BMY um, that do the same thing. And these guys think they're on to the next generation of it. But they had yet to test the things in broad studies or even small studies. In the lab, it looks so promising they were able to raise a ton of money. But again, these tumicidal um, protein degraders would infiltrate a cell's um, uh, uh, protein pathway, essentially, and keep it from not only keep it from duplicating itself, but actually turn it into killing itself and quickly eliminate, uh, quickly eliminate, I said reading my notes, eliminate um, the targeted proteins from the cells. The problem is it can also do other bad stuff, 
right? So right, you know, for cancer, so it's not just all, it's just not encouraging the tumors to kill themselves, but more or the side effects. I mean, look for for all of these companies we talk about in here um, about and in inside your phone if you're listening to your phone or inside your smart speaker if you're. You can see me inside the smart speaker if you look right on the edge of them, right? Or here, or here. So um, all the things we talk about in here, about these cancer uh, biotech companies with these great cures, the bottom line is that most cancer is treated, if it's treated at all, is treated with chemotherapy and radiation. The chemotherapy is just poison that kills cell growth. And radiation is just toxic coals getting dumped inside your body and burning stuff. Not a lot more complicated than that. It is a lot more complicated than that if you look at the details, but that's how barbaric most cancer treatment is at this point. And so the problem is with all these neato ideas is what's the toxicity going to be of those things? Right? We know about the side effects of chemo. We know about the side effects of radiation. What are the side effects of these tumicidal protein degraders? Well, it turns out that C4 Therapeutics has discovered they're worse. They're worse than they had hoped. So uh, they came up with a study this week and said that they found um, uh, a drug that they were testing on just a handful of patients, helped a few of them, but really hurt a few others, and that they're going to have to change the way they administer it. And they're suggesting that maybe 14 days out of 14 days off would work. Others looked at that and said, yeah, that's not going to work. You're grasping at straws right now. Uh, I think that's why you saw the stock sell off. Here's what Adam Crystal, who is the chief medical officer at C4 Therapeutics had to say about the data. And he compares it with um, uh, other things out there. They, they refer to the drug as CC92480. And um, they're trying to think that maybe there's a way you can do it without the side effects that the serum light chain that looked like it was damaged by this drug wouldn't, wouldn't be so bad if you had two weeks off. And then the drug continues to work when you're not taking it kind of like a radiation treatment would. Here's what Adam Crystal had to say. Some of that data looked at alternative regimens um, with CC92480, including the 14-day on, 14-day off regimen we have moved to. You might remember that in that regimen, they saw what they refer to as a sawtooth effect. Serum-free light chains did recover by the end of that 14-day off period. They didn't with a three-week on, one-week off schedule. Because our PK profile is different, we believe that we have, that we will be able to sustain the, the anti-tumor effect during that 14-day holiday. Said most simplistically, it's because our half-life is effectively twice as long. Therefore, uh, we will maintain anti-tumor effects for twice as long as CC92480. So they want to maintain anti-tumor effects and who wouldn't root for them? doing that. But the bottom line is the reaction to this trial was the trial was just not a success, if not indeed a failed trial, or just didn't have the, um, the toxicity was too much. And the treatment is going to be, at least at this point, not as promising as it looked only days ago. Tumicidal. Corey, what is your next drill down? Here's a new one for you. N-Link Midstream LLC. Enlink Midstream trades under ENLC and shares have skyrocketed over 133% over the past 12 months. A year ago, ENLC shares dropped below a buck. Now they're back above 10. Still, still it's been a bumpy ride. Back in 2014, ENLC was trading around $41 a share. So it's been, it's a, been a journey. Is, 
this is a nearly five billion market cap company. So this isn't some you know single digit stock that became something. Um, just a very interesting, not sexy company. I found this company by doing a screen. I was looking. I was trying to make sure we weren't ignoring. You know, we look at the companies that go way up or way down in a day, and they sure. often they make so much noise. We pay m- maybe too much attention to them. I was looking for stocks that had very very low volatility. You know, two two and a half percent volatility, but fantastic share gains. And as you mentioned. Um, in the last month, stocks up 19%. The last quarter, 31%. Uh, in the last year, 132% increase from this stock. So just fantastic growth in this company that's a midstream business. So in oil and gas, there's upstream, midstream, downstream. So upstream's finding the gas and oil. Midstream's moving it around. Downstream is selling it, uh, gas stations and so on. These guys have pipelines and they've got facilities that move oil. And for a long time, their growth was tied to Devon, Devon's growth. Devon Energy, um, best performer in the S&P 500 last year, uh, guest of the Drill Down podcast, um, once upon a time. Um, at one point, about 50% of, of uh, N-Link's business was Devon-related. But they've expanded. They've got pipelines that are carrying oil and gas from ExxonMobil, from Telos, from others. Um, and what they've found is, shocker, just like in retail, oil and gas is about location, location, location. These guys are in the right locations, not just being in the Permian Basin, where drilling activity is picking up from private companies a lot faster than it is from public companies, but it seems to be picking up across the board given oil and gas prices right now. But they're also in the right parts of the Permian Basin. Um, from uh, from Midland, uh, and Midland Gas has been a real big performer for them. Listen to the N-Link Midstream Chief Operating Officer Brian Lamb on their last conference call. I think that the broader picture on our Permian growth for this year, which is in the 40% range, is that it's driven by both sides of the basin. So last year, the vast majority of the growth in the Permian came from Midland, and particularly from the Midland gas business. This year, it will be more balanced. Um, We expect to see a significant additional contribution from our Delaware business and also to see significant additional contributions from our crude businesses. Those were a bit smaller than the gas businesses, but they still uh, make a difference. So this year, the Permian business is gonna be firing on all cylinders to deliver greater than 40% growth over last year. So location, 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 very important in the Permian, but Permian Basin may be doing well across the board. All right, coming up next, we're going to look at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity with these new threats from Russia and warnings from the U.S. government that Russian hacking is about to pick up from a company that knows a lot about hacking, this uh, IT infrastructure management company that is not a pure cybersecurity company, but they manage cybersecurity stuff in the enterprise. SolarWinds, you know the name, Sudhakar Ramakrishna joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust is how clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And we're joined right now by Sudhakar Ramakrishna, who is the CEO of SolarWinds. Uh, Sudhakar, glad to have you on the show. SolarWinds is, we've had, uh, I guess, a lot of companies in your, in the cybersecurity space, but I thought this was just such a great time 
to talk about the industry and help us make sense of, of who does what and who does it well. Presumably you think SolarWinds does it well. But um, in particular, a time when we're getting so many warnings about um, an impending um, uh, barrage of, of cybersecurity threats coming from Russia um, as, we, uh, as the world uh, looks out at the war um, against Ukraine and Ukrainian people. And I wonder, um, first of all, what do, what do you, t- tell me how, what SolarWinds does briefly, and, and then I want to kind of get into some of the recent headlines, and then we'll back into what you guys do uh, in greater detail. Thank you, first of all, Corey, for having me here. Uh, SolarWinds, the way I would describe it is uh, we are enhancing the productivity of IT professionals, developers, and security professionals by enabling them to manage and monitor their environments, which includes computing systems, databases, cloud infrastructure, and applications more effectively and more securely. That's the business we are in. So it's really about kind of controlling the, 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 what's running on the network? I would say in many ways, not so much controlling, but enabling and giving them the visibility to what's happening on their networks and in their infrastructure and environments. So do you, I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question. I mean, where do you stand in terms of being able to see when threats occur? Uh, you know, what line of defense are you and uh, or awareness are you? So we are able to provide a variety of correlation of events within the customer's environment. So threats happen, as you know, from all places. And it's very difficult in many cases for customers to understand what is the origination of a threat and how should I react to it? So people use the term alert fatigue. Uh, that happens yeah. to all of us, um, meaning that we are getting hit with so many alerts, we don't know what to do and how to make sense out of it. So in the security spectrum, that's what we do. We do alert classification, simplification such that the security professionals can pinpoint what's happening and actually take action. And this is across all kinds of different cybersecurity products your customer might have? Yeah, and uh, the interesting thing that we are able to do is oftentimes you don't know where the issue is. It could be in the application, it could be in the network, it could be in the cloud or the database. Somebody has to correlate all of these things and make sense out of it. That's where we come into the picture. So uh, let's now talk about what's going on uh, right now. So with this ongoing threat, you know, we didn't see, I think, what a lot of people feared, certainly when, when Russia invaded uh, Georgia, for example, Russian troops there, that was preceded by a massive cyber attack, shutting down yeah. local internet, shutting down local utilities. We saw the same thing um, uh, in, in Crimea when uh, Russian troops came into Crimea and seized that from, uh, from Ukraine. And uh, we did not seem to see that in this most recent um, um, horrible attack by Russia on Ukraine. And I wonder what you saw and and in what you make of the the warnings we've gotten from the U.S. government lately? Absolutely. The way I'd like to describe this, Corey, is there is no pattern to how they operate and how they attack. And so, in some ways, we need to be in a constant state of vigilance and constant state of learning. Uh, so uh, my CISO calls it shields up all the time. And so what we are looking for are clues, what we're looking for are correlatable events, 
but right now, I would say outside of being cautious, uh, there hasn't been any specific pattern we can pinpoint. But what do you make of the fact that we didn't see this? Was it because SolarWinds is doing such a great job, Russia couldn't hack anybody? Or Russia's waiting? Or Russia didn't have the capacity without Ukrainian hackers also working on their side? Yeah, I honestly think that there is no such thing as any single company being so good that it can thwart all attacks. I, I don't think that's a possibility, especially in the case of a nation state attacker. Uh, I simply think the collective defenses of all of us are more vigilant and more aware right now. Um, and it could also be that the attacker does not yet have a view of what an element of surprise might look like yet. So I don't believe we are through it. What do you mean by that uh, element of surprise? Meaning that it's possible that they haven't attacked because they know that at this point they we expect an attack and therefore we are extra vigilant about defending ourselves. So it's not like our guards are down at this point. So if they create a coordinated attack, it's possible that we can actually thwart it. Interesting. And you haven't seen activity on the networks of the, the hundreds of thousands of customers you've got that indicates anything happening at scale? Not uh, from what we can see, Corey, but that also doesn't mean that we see everything. I mean, we have to continue to communicate what we see with the regulators and the government and continue to learn from our industry peers and the regulators themselves. Well, well eyes are open, of course. When, what do you, so uh, you talked about vigilance zone. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. The suggestion that things are always like this. I mean, the, the federal government's saying, no, this is different. This is a bigger deal now. This is a greater threat right now than it was two months ago. Um, and maybe greater than it might be two years from now. I think we need to treat it as such. When I look at what the federal government is saying, I look at it as, uh, similar to how we look at airport security of we are in a red alert state, orange state, and so on. Uh, We need to think about it as we are in the red alert or at least high orange, so to speak. That's the way I like to think of where we are from a security and a cybersecurity landscape perspective. So what does this environment do for your sales, which have been, you know, persistently strong for a long time? From a, Sales standpoint, uh, the way I would describe it, Corey, is that SolarWinds is not a traditional security company, so to speak, like uh, a firewall company or a uh, virus-oriented company. That's not who we are. Uh, We do help customers with their security needs across all those dimensions that I described. Customers are looking at us for not just the security piece of it, but the visibility and the ability to manage their assets more effectively which all have security implications, but our sales are coming from a combination of those factors, not just purely security. So, you know, you guys talk about in your financial filings about selling from the inside, the suggestion that IT people know your products, go from one job to the next and say, why the heck don't you guys have solar winds or a fuller implementation of solar winds? And that you get that kind of recommendation sales, which changes the way you sell things. I suppose that also would mean that because those people are consistently engaged in IT security, that the news headlines of the day don't drive them to increase their sales like it might for other security companies. It, it, um, it is true to some degree, 
at the same time, as you know, security tends to be, or security purchases somewhat tend to be like insurance, meaning that if I buy enough insurance, I'm somehow protected downstream. That is a mindset of many customers. Our job, as I would say, uh, to all of our salespeople, as well as um, our customers, is to educate them on what is really necessary and relevant so that they should be able to get same or a higher levels of security for a lower cost and not just throwing more cost at the problem or more money I at the problem. A, I'm thinking back to um, one time I was having drinks with a senior uh, Homeland Security official who was doing cybersecurity stuff. And after a few drinks, finally said to me, look, the thing with these companies is they might just, the people buy software from one company to fix one little problem and they buy a company and all those companies describe themselves as having lots of solutions. In fact, they might have the solution for just one little one. problem and they end up as part of a stack of lots of other things. But his suggestion is that most of these companies were garbage if you wanted to try to look at them as a uh, one-stop shop for cybersecurity. Yeah, unfortunately, there is no one-stop uh, shop for cybersecurity. And similar to the alert fatigue construct that I described, the other concern that a lot of our customers express is the notion of tool scroll. I have too many tools. I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how to determine what's useful, what's not, and what to trust and what not to trust. So that's where we look at our job of simplifying their environments uh, as being a primary obligation. And so it's not just about selling them another tool. It's about giving them a little bit more value for what they already have. Has the selling environment for you changed uh, with COVID? I mean, certainly events were part of that, but but not as big as other things. And I wonder if just the inability of people to gather hurts your ability to reach those potential customers. Not for us, Corey, because uh, we have been fortunate, I would say, that we've been selling from the inside well before COVID. So it was rarely the case that we would have to, let's say, be on a plane, go to a customer, meet somebody in Europe, or let's say in Virginia. Most of our conversations, in fact, all of our conversations with customers were via the web or on the phone. So when COVID happened, it essentially was almost like every other company was trying to do what we were always doing, which was sell from the inside. So it didn't really affect us in that way. So what's happening now is, is COVID restrictions are being lifted left and right and people are returning to the office and, and uh, are being compelled to return to the office. What's changed for you? Well, what's changed for us is the dimensions that we need to worry about for customers has continued to evolve. So whereas previously they were on-premises or maybe remote, now it's, everything is hybrid. Uh, we need to worry about their assets in the cloud. We need to worry about their assets at home, for instance. Um, Home-based uh, security concerns are exploding as well because it's tough to control uh, those as much. So in that sense, um, the explosion of challenges has increased. At the same time, our job is to simplify those and unify those things. And to your earlier point, not throw more tools at our customers. It's an interesting challenge uh, that you have there too. I mean, is is the mobility of the IT workforce that we're seeing where IT managers seem to jump jobs more now than they ever have, at least in the last couple couple decades, that they've um, that they bring the desire to work with your tools more often? I, absolutely. We are again uh, speaking of good fortune. 
we have a community of IT professionals, includes developers and security professionals, which we call the THWAC. There are 180,000. I love the THWAC. THWAC. You and I pronounce it differently, but either way, a THWAC is a THWAC. (laughs) Yes. So there are over 180,000 professionals in that community that we engage with on a very regular basis. So we not only enable them, but we also constantly learn from them. What, what are your challenges? What are your problems? How do we solve those problems best? And they're a very vocal community. They care about us at one level, but they also give us very critical feedback that makes our products better. So that is another thing that we've invested over the years that has come in really, really handy, handy uh, both to deal with current issues, but also to address future needs. And yet it seems that um, your your recurring customer business has not been what it used to be, which is to say that in the fiscal year 2021, you lost, I think, 12% of your recurring customers. What's that about? What am I seeing there? So historically, Corey, uh, it is the case that most customers have some churn. I should say most vendors have some churn. Our historical retention rates, let's say, used to be in the 92 93% rate. So on any given year, you'll have about 7% churn. In 2021, it went down a little bit because as you may have heard, we were impacted by the sunburst attack back in 2020, um, December 2020, in fact. So most of 2021, what we did was focused on supporting and retaining customers, not really focus a lot on revenue generation activities. But as we approach the end of the year, our numbers have uh, come back to more or less historical levels. And I believe we will do that in 2022. So, yes, expenses. You got some big expenses kind of behind you. You had that huge hack in 2020 that um, had a lasting um, expense impact on your company and the income statement. You've got the the big expenses from doing the spinoff of Enable, a separately traded company now, and and are those are let's take both those things and talk about what costs persist from those two big things. So I'd say Enable is completely behind us. It's running as an independent company, and while there are maybe some loose um, um, engagements, uh, there's not a real material cost involved in uh, the spinoff anymore. So it's completely off our books. And that was about thirty-two million dollars last year. Yes, yes, and then. We spent about $25 million for what the initiative, which we call Secure by Design, across all aspects of Secure by Design. I would say the ongoing costs of that, because we have improved our build systems, we have delivered a different level of security to the supply chain. On an ongoing basis, company-wide across all initiatives, it'll be between 15 and $20 million. Every year, or just this year? No, every year. We have actually modeled our business to support that on a go forward basis. I mean, it's tough to pinpoint specific line items. And that's all a reaction to that 2020 hack. I would say partly, um, but mostly to set a new standard of secure software design. Uh, Yes, we did certain things to improve our internal security posture, cloud security posture, and so on, like every company does. But a majority of the investment was to establish a new way of developing software, and I'll I'll touch on it very briefly. Uh, In most companies, uh, software is done and developed in somewhat of a static fashion and on a single thread uh, model. 
So think of it as we build a system which creates a fixed attack point, uh, a fixed target for an attacker. What we did coming out of the Sunburst incident and learning about it is we created a three-way build system. What it does is creates a very small threat opportunity or threat window for an attacker to attack and keeps changing the threat surface. So thereby the software that we produce is far more secure, far more reliable than a conventional way of doing it. Uh, That is work that we have published uh, as open source uh, to the community because I think every vendor, every customer can benefit from us. So that's an investment that we took upon ourselves. Did you think about changing the name of the company? Just because it got to be, I don't don't want to overstate it and say it was synonymous with hacking or it was a dirty word, but it couldn't have been easy to try to get new customers when your name of the company was Solar Winds, and that was the name in in the headlines about hacking for a little while. Absolutely. Uh, Cody, it was unfortunate that a incident that was much broader than SolarWinds got attributed to SolarWinds, but that notwithstanding, uh, the reason I chose not to change the name of the company in the midst of it was we wanted to be very transparent with what happened. We wanted to take action. We wanted to prove that we had a company that was trustworthy. And my instinct was if we simply changed our name, we would come across as throwing real issues under the rug and trying to change the name and get away from the real issues that not only we are facing, but the industry is facing. So I felt that that would not be the right time to change the name of the company. Interesting, interesting challenge. Um, Can't even imagine, and it's obviously going to be an important company going forward. Company Solar Winds, of course, uh, Sudhakar Ramakrishna, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Cody. Thanks for having me. All right, well, coming up next, the bite, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We'll talk about the size of the customer base for this company. It's a a meaningful number, and we'll have that number when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can use your smart speaker to play the drill down to get every episode. Just ask your smart speaker to play the drill down podcast. and You can hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Okay, we're back with a bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot, the drill down bite, is the number of customers this company has. And it's sizable, Isaac. SolarWinds ended last year with 300,000 customers. That's that a lot. 499 of the top Fortune 500, I'm sorry, of the Fortune 500 companies. Now, wow. I never believe numbers that end in zeros, so I will bet you anything they didn't have 300,000. They'd have a little uh, bit more, a little bit less, and they rounded to that number. I hate rounding when it comes to these things, but nonetheless, here they are in their SEC filing saying, 300,000 customers. So this, this IT management software, it also, you know, it shows you two things. It shows you how, how um, widespread their, um, their business offerings are and how successful they are. It also yeah. shows you how scary that breach was that they had in 2020 that affected yeah. so many customers. 
Well, I remember when this happened. I mean, people were up in arms and like the sky was falling. And now it's clearly, you know, ever, since they're connected to almost everyone that we talk to in yeah. some way. Great stuff. All right, you've been listening to Drilling Podcast. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.